This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase. It's the Todd Berry Podcast. The Todd Berry Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Tom Shalhoub is the guest. He was also the very first guest way back whenever I started this podcast. He was my very first guest. And now he's back. So check him out. What else? Uh, I have some tour dates coming up. Let's look at them right now. Fairfield, Connecticut, July 22nd. August 19th, Wilmington, Delaware, never been there. Uh, September 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, I'll be at the the Bumbershoot Festival in Seattle. I have a book out called Thank You for Coming to Hattiesburg. It's a tour diary. You can go to my site, toddberry.com, and order it there if you like. There's also an audio book with uh, two forwards, one by Jesse Eisenberg, the great actor, and the great stand-up Doug Stanhope also does one if you're into forwards of books. I have Todd Berry podcast t-shirts, toddberry.com slash shirt. You can get those there. And go to feralaudio.com for this podcast and other podcasts. Okay, here is Tom Shalhoub. Now it's started. It's We're recording. started. Uh, if you're back more, yeah, where okay. I am. All right. No. We'll, we'll leave all this in. This is behind-the-scenes stuff. It's always um, good. I like to have... Um, I do a podcast with Andy Levy. You do? Yeah. And What's uh, your podcast? It's the Red Eye Podcast. Oh, that's right. And it uh, we usually start off with uh, a little banter like this. Uh-huh. We pretend like we don't really know we're on the air, but yeah. we, we really are. That's kind of my thing as well. <laughs> I thought I invented that, but I guess I did. Well, it's an old... I think it's an old... Uh, people no. like that behind-the-scenes stuff. I should tell people, although I probably told them in the intro, which I haven't recorded yet, you were the first guest on the Todd Berry podcast. Wow. And now you're the 148th guest. Holy. Right. Holy. The, the, um, and there, it's been uninterrupted? Uh, I wouldn't say it's uninterrupted. What do you mean interrupted? Like, has it's it been the, like once a week, every week? No, no, no. That it's, it's just been constant. You didn't shut it down and start a new one or? No, I didn't. But I mean, I've taken a few extended breaks. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do it every Listen, uh, week. Um, I admire the, the the top people in podcasting. Yeah, they're running it obviously like a professional operation, right. and I'm but, not. But you know the that's the difference though. They they you have to admire their. Uh, it's done so well. I, I mean, I've been dealing with some podcasts because I, I've been promoting this book. I have. Oh yeah, uh, we'll get into that. Okay, but the idea is I've been running around and I'm dealing with bookers and uh, you know it's it's like a. It's done professionally, and I like it. I like the way that podcasting is now. They got the, you know, you got everything from the guy with a a Zoom recorder in Uh his apartment to the person with a full studio, a booker, and a producer. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's great. I'm the guy who should have a booker, but has the Zoom in his apartment. (laughs) So I like to, uh, that's, I'm still a little punk rock about it. 
Now, you were on Colbert last night. Last night. I watched it. You seemed really, like, you came out like guns blazing, like, you seemed very comfortable. Really? Yes. Well, it's... Thank I mean, not you. that That's you should good. be uncomfortable, or yep. I was expecting you to be uncomfortable, but you, like, you just walked out there and your arms were in the air, and you're like, <laughs> hey, let's do this. Well, I like to have the... Well, I, I mean, I'm. that's very good that you said that, and, um, and it is a... a a deliberate and studied uh, art of mine to try to not be nervous, and so I, I I go in with a lot of mental energy of being like, let's. I'm kind of obsessed with let's just be natural and be cool. This isn't a big deal, even though it's a big deal. Uh-huh. So you have to pretend. So I do a lot of psychological games on myself to make it not a big deal, and uh, so I, th- you saying that makes me think uh, I'm glad because I. Uh, I like to take these big shows, and I remember the first time I did stand-up on Conan. I uh-huh. I was like, it was like a mental game for three days. This isn't a big deal. Do a set, you know. I would go into the the comic strip to run my Conan set. Yeah. And I would before going on. It sounds like a little bit obsessive, but this is what you do. It's just a you know, it's just preparation. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I would be in the that little uh, comic strip area, you know. And I would pretend that I was going to do the TV set. And I'm like, millions of people are watching, go out. And I would get out on stage at the strip, Uh and I would pretend the stakes were very, very high. And I would actually make myself nervous. Wow. Heart rate getting up and things like that to try to simulate the... It's like a a flight simulator. Yeah. So, which is to say that um, it's... You know, whether it's... uh, for, For a podcast, I will admit that it's a, a high level of, of preparation. But then in my everyday life, people say, hey, I saw you on Colbert. It was really... And I say, ah, it was great, you know, and I pretend like it's not a big deal. Right. Well, we're not <laughs> supposed to uh, be like, oh, I'm so nervous. Yeah. <laughs> but, I would, yeah, I did that show. I was fairly... I was surprised because I haven't done tons of panel least. I guess I've done some panel on Conan. I, so I guess I've done a fair amount of it. But it was like it had been a while. Yeah. And then I... So it, like, it was kind of like I, I had a book come out and... They're like, oh, we can get John Colbert, and they got me right on. I was yep. like, oh, fuck, this is like the top-rated. That's right when it became, I think, the top-rated talk show. Really? When's the like, day you were shit, on? I'm going to be a panellist. Yes. <laughs> it's like I, I, And then it dropped off after. <laughs> it was only, he only had high ratings when I was on. But, yeah, it's kind of like, holy shit, this is a big deal. Yeah, but he's great with books. He was always, the, yeah. he was always good on Colbert Report. Uh-huh. He had authors on all the time. Yeah. And authors who were just authors, not like comedian authors. Or right. Anything. And they would come on and they were, uh, you know, not good on television because they're writers, you know. Mm-hmm. But he would prod them and poke them and get a great interview all the time. So I think that his one of his things is uh, he likes to have the book segment and, and have authors on. Yeah, that must be it. Um, did you get the sense that he read a lot of your book or is he prepped or... Uh, I got the sense that he didn't. Um, he prepped for the interview with his producer, uh-huh. but I don't think he even opened the book because, uh, not that he should. I mean, some people do, and some I didn't open don't. your book. You didn't, but I booked you yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And also, you didn't send me the book yet. I should. I, I should have one in a bag, but I don't even have it because I left my bags yeah, in I, my office yesterday, so I don't have them. But I will get. I've you. known you long enough where I can do that. I could pull this off without having read your book. Yes, and nor would it make it any more interesting because you'd be like. Sometimes when someone has read the book, it's wonderful because then they they talk about it and get people to buy it. 
you know, I was on the Jim Bohannon show, national radio show, this old dude, like, uh-huh. legacy broadcaster, amazing radio guy, like yeah. a Larry King type of guy. And he he read the book, and I'm like, I love old people because they do things. Like, they do their homework, and right. young people are like, I'm not reading a book, you know? <laughs> so you're saying I'm young. That's good. No, you are young. But the- I have the laziness of a young person, but I'm old. <laughs> but then there are other people who uh, don't read the book, but they, they read the bullet points, and they are like... I'm curious about your book. Tell me this. Tell me this. And then, you know, by convincing the, the the person that it's a good book, you're also convincing the audience. So there's two ways to go about it. Yeah, and also probably, if I was like oh, in that chapter you mentioned this, like, then the, but the people at home hadn't read that chapter, right? So I don't know if that's helpful. It isn't helpful sometimes. Yeah. Um, there's a cat near us, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hope she meows. That'll be add a little texture to this podcast. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very um, uh, hairy cat. Like, yeah, it's, it's fluffy. It's, it's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Um. Now, something fun. I ran into you last night when I sealed this deal here. Yeah. And uh, with booking you. Well, we were planning on it too. We were back and forth yeah, on yeah, the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like you you want to do the podcast next week, and I was like, yeah, let's uh, right. Let's let's look at it. And then last night I saw you on uh, outside the. Uh, Outside the Blue Note, and you told me. See, I was, <laughs> I was sitting in with a with a jazz band last night. Uh, no, no, we were across the street at the uh, Village Underground. Yeah. The, you mentioned something funny happened on Colbert. Like I'm, I'll, I'll let you tell the story. Okay, so, they. I mean, this goes into the preparation of, right. of Colbert. He had just come back from Russia. Okay. So, you know, when you do that trip back from Europe, is deadly. Russia is even deadlier as far as the the jet lag. Uh huh. So he was just back from Russia. I was surprised he was even doing a show because he had landed in the morning or something. And, uh, you know, so, and he described being jet lagged and everything like that. And his producer said, look, he's going to be back from Russia. He's going to be he's going to be exhausted. Uh, we're going to prepare this interview. So you do the pre-interview like you do on late night shows. Right. So I sat down with the producer and we had a pre-interview and we went through because she read the book, which is great. His producer mm-hmm. totally went through the book. She was into it. And she was like. What about this? And then I said, I told a story about my dad. And then she was like, oh, I thought you were going to tell the story about meatloaf. And I was like, oh, meatloaf. And I was like, I haven't talked about that in the in, in any interview. Okay. Because I thought it was like right in the middle of the book. And it's this scene in the book where my dad finds my meatloaf bat out of hell album. And then he pulls out the lyric sheet, sits me down and reads me the lyrics aloud. Is that true? It's true. Oh, my God. And so it's... It comes off in the book. It's kind of fun, but then it's a total late night panel story because right. it's like your dad reading like, "We're gonna go all the way tonight." Yeah. What does that mean, Tommy? You know, and reading me the lyrics of the oh sheet. Oh my god! Okay. So, and the funny thing is, I can't do it justice in the book because you can't quote song, song lyrics in a book. You can't? No, it's like they you have to pay for the rights to quote them. To quote them, and Harper Collins was like, "We're not paying the the rights for the, you know for this thing," and I was like. It's kind of crucial to the story, and they're like, we can get away without it. And she was like, believe me. My editor was like, we can do it if, like, if you go nuts about it, like, if you think it's needed in the book. But she said, it's a real pain, one. Two, it costs some money to do it because you have to approach the publisher. Three, like, you have to renegotiate every time, like, the book gets resold. If, like, if I sold the European rights to it. They would have to go back Isn't in. Isn't there and, like a certain amount of like fair use though, like where you can snag so a couple small. lines? It's well, it's so small that in the course of the story, I would have to quote because it's funny. My dad reading in a Boston accent. Yeah. So the idea would be like, it's cold and lonely in the deep dark night. Like I would write that out in Boston accent, and it would make the story funny because yeah. you could picture my dad saying. And then there was another scene in the book 
that I thought really needed lyrics because the first time I ever made out with a girl in a car uh-huh. was I was playing Imperial Bedroom. Uh, Ooh, that's a good album. <laughs> it's a great. And so I'm I'm I wanted to use the lyrics of Imperial Bedroom as I inched toward her on the seat. I thought it was very romantic. Yeah. And when I because I can remember when I first kissed her, Man Out of Time was playing. Ah, so as I go in for it's the a kiss, long song, you can you can yeah you can is. have sex and yeah, that mean, song's still going to be playing. Well, no, you can't have sex if you were me. But <laughs> I went in for the makeout, and then when I kissed her, it was uh, uh, "To Murder My Love Is a Crime." But will you still love a man out of time? So, because I wanted that lyric in there. I didn't know you were an Elvis fan. Oh, are you kidding me? That's way interesting. Punch the clock was my. That's I sort of an unsung album of this. Yeah, but it's unbelievably good. Yeah, and. I had it in my Chevy Monza, <laughs> and I wore out the tape. I mean, a cassette tape, and it would play. And Becky, remember when you would play side A, and then it would flip over and play side yeah, B? Yeah. I mean, I played that whole album. Um, and, you know, uh, Shipbuilding with um, Chet Baker playing the trumpet. Yeah. It's so good. The first time I saw Elvis was in Gainesville, Florida, on the Imperial Bedroom Tour. Holy moly. Yeah. But anyway, back to Colbert. <laughs> so, I... What a chance. The pre-interviewer says, I would love that you tell that meatloaf story. I said, oh, I'm all over it. And I said, this is great because I haven't even done it on any other press. I've never mentioned that story. So it'd be like kind of exclusive network TV yeah. you know, story. So I uh, I was going to tell the meatloaf story. The other story that she liked was my altar boy story where I, I caught on fire uh, as an altar boy. I leaned over and I caught on fire. <laughs> And you nobody, got good, <laughs> you got good stories. Man. I wish I had some of these stories when I wrote my book. <laughs> but I had, I had sneakers on, and I was trying to hide my sneakers from the nun, Sister Colleen, in the front row. And so I was bending down to try to keep my cassock and surplice low to yeah. cover the shoes. And I leaned over and I caught on fire. And then Sister Colleen looked at me like, you know, take care of that. And then it was the struggle to put myself out without stopping the mass. So I was going to say to, you know, to, to Stephen, I said, like, it's a like show business. You know, the Catholic mass, it, it must go on, you know? So right. that was like, the, so that story about catching fire, okay? And the way I get into the thing with the pre-interviewer, I said, you know, was Stephen a, an altar boy? And she said, I think he was an altar boy. And I said, you know, being an altar boy, I said to the pre-interviewer, um, Megan, I said, being an altar boy is like being a waiter. Like, you know, when you first start, you take all the shifts that nobody else wants. Right. And then I said, I had to do daily masses in the chapel where everyone can see you. And there's 10 rows of pews. And and I was doing a daily mass and blah, blah, blah. And then we go into the story about catching on fire. So the, the entree into the story is, were you an altar boy? And then since she said he was, I was like, good, I'll, I'll ask him. And then he can, then we can get into the story. And I'll make the comparison between being an altar boy and being a waiter. And then we'll get into the story. So she wrote it all down. And then, so then you, as you know, when you do these late night panels, they do the pre-interview and they will either do what you did in the pre-interview or they won't, you know, they don't necessarily, right. it's not, it's up to the host to just wing it. To and, call an audible as we say in sports. Yes. And so you've got to be ready to either do the, the stand up material that you've gone over. And I think people like, I never did Letterman, but I, from what I understand, Letterman liked you to do the... The jokes, right? Oh, in panel? Yeah. I never really did panel with Letterman. I kind of sat down once or uh-huh. twice, but it was, it was sort of like uh, very brief. Right, right. I remember. I remember you sitting with, with Letterman, but the... Uh, and late night with Letterman, right? Well, I remember... No, I was Icky. just on Late Show. I was on the CBS one. Hold on. Icky, late night. Was that Conan? That was Conan. Oh, okay. I'm mixing them all up. Yeah, good, yeah, good. Yeah. 
So the the um, but I obviously some hosts have a reputation for being more going by their producers and feeding the setup lines. You know, to all the way to the extremes where like Byron Allen doesn't care at all. He will just right. Oh yeah. You that's, know. <laughs> that's, everyone makes fun of him, but yeah, I know. It's just like just doing the complete setup. So I heard you don't like credit cards. <laughs> Really, you heard it's, that? Exactly. It's like and someone the thing told is, you that. It's right in the prompter. Right. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Stephen, who is much more of an uh, interview artist mm -hmm. and a, and a great one, I think he's one of the great interviewers, uh, both on the Daily Show and yeah. then on on this show. So I knew that he was apt to wing it. So part of my preparation was like, be ready to launch into the stories, and if there's a, if he leaves you any room, go with the go with your setups. And if not, just play along with the interview. And then I ended up playing along, and it was fine. But what happened was, I'm sitting there in the dressing room, and I'm getting ready. And I'm not necessarily that interested in what goes on on the show before I go on. I'm trying to get into my head about being, like, you know, ready to go on. And I'm watching Michael Keaton. But I decided to turn up the TV and watch the Keaton interviews just in case, mm -hmm. you know, something comes up or whatever. And then he says, you're an altar boy, to, to Michael Keaton. Right. And Michael Keaton starts talking altar boy stuff with Steven. And then Steven says, uh, you know, I, I always thought being an altar boy was like being a waiter. <laughs> Steven said it. Oh, my God. To, to uh, Michael Keaton. And there were two things that went on. I said, whoa, uh-oh. Uh, uh and then, oh, I'm glad I turned up the TV because, thank heavens, I'm, I saw this. So I didn't right. go out and launch into So the And then Steven said that they talking about the the waiter comparison and he said you know you you it's like you have a uh, a napkin over your arm you have to pour the water and the wine things like that so he made the comparison it wasn't and then he elaborated on he it? elaborated yes in a different way now th the thing was i didn't really care that much at that point i was like okay just don't do the i'm not going to talk altar boy stories unless he brings it up okay but i uh, it was just a matter of like i'm glad i know that that was done so i can move on to the next thing but when i told you you were like i can't believe that as we spoke in front of the blue note. Yes. The, <laughs> the, with your stand-up bass in your yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah, I had my bass and my flugelhorn. <laughs> but I said, this wasn't a... A, it was not a uh, someone stealing material or something. Yeah. It was one of two things, I think. that, And what happens is, before I go on, I'm standing in the wings, and Stephen came over to say hello, and he was like, last time I saw you was on the corner of 53rd and 10th Avenue. Like, he remembers when I saw him, like, 17 years ago. Wow. Uh, and I know, I remember that day, because I was like, I'm hanging on the street corner with Stephen Colbert, right? And that, and I knew that was the last time I saw him. So when he came over, he was like, the last time I saw you, and I was like, is he going to remember this? And he was like, was on the corner, and he told me, you know. And uh, so it was kind of cool that he remembered that. So then he goes back to his desk, and the, the producer sits down with him, and does a quick go-over of the interview, like the talking points and stuff. So she either mentioned something about, you know, waiters and, and altar boys. No, no, wait, that was actually after the, the Keaton interview. So oh, okay. before the show, she must have sat down and gone over something, and there may have been some notes. Yeah, I bet you, because I know on Conan, there's like, I, I, I grabbed them last time, there's actually explicit notes with almost a transcript of what you might talk about. Yes, there's tons, you know, because it is the job of the pre-interviewer to give you background so you don't have to read the book you don't have to know what you're doing but you can have a nice wonderful conversation so one of two things happened she either said something about altar boys and waiters and it got in his head and then it just made him think of of that while he was talking to michael keaton or two 
she might he might have he might have always thought that you know it's not that you know it's not that uh, it's a very universal type of observation mm-hmm. so he um he may have had that observation on his own and he might have maybe this is something he taught because he was an altar boy so he may I have, think that it was more likely he was getting ready for the show and had a bunch of things yes and he just got back from russia and, right, and you and, know and he was just like altar boy triggered I mean, it was. It's the same subject, so yes. he probably. That's what I think happened. And he may have thought that the thing was you get notes. So there might have been notes on Michael Keaton that he was Catholic because he loves when he has Catholics on. He loves to talk Catholicism. He loves to bring up details and things like that. So one of the things with the pre-interview with Michael Keaton may have been Catholicism and altar boys. So there may have been a lot of altar boy talk that evening and whatever. So in any case, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was the. It was something I had to roll with. But it was it was shocking to hear something I had planned to say. I came out anyway before I got out, so I had to readjust. Right, because so. like, what if you'd gone to the bathroom or something, or just weren't paying attention yes. to every second of the show beforehand? I think that's why you have to. That right. that, that was a great. Uh, it, it's almost like you can't do it in stand up, but if you go up at ten twenty, and someone has gone up at uh, at nine forty, yeah, and done material. Right. Then you get up and start the setup, and you can sometimes you can feel in the room. You're like, I think somebody talked about this before. I think I, I may have told this story before. I'm sure I have, but I will anyway. Again, I do a joke about this specific Walgreens in Chicago, <laughs> and I did a show in Austin, and the guy hosting not only did a show a joke about Walgreens, he did a joke about that Walgreens. Oh my gosh! And it was just like, oh how the fuck, because it just. It just makes you not that I was like, oh, no one's ever noticed. This. It's just pretty weird. That's very weird. Yeah, it's not weird that someone noticed the, that this was an unusual Walgreens, but that it was in Austin, Texas. Yeah, and this guy's going on right before me. I mean, it's highly, it's highly unusual. Yeah. What What is about the Walmart that's so unusual? Walgreens. Oh, it's in a bank and it's beautiful and it's uh, it's uh, very like. It doesn't. It's like in an old, beautiful building. It's yeah. like at the Washington Memorial. Lincoln Memorial had a, was a Walgreens sort of. Is it? I'm uh, exaggerating a little bit, but is it? Uh, is it like right next to a comedy condo or something? No. No, I'm just trying to think of like why another comedian would. Yeah, that's. I guess maybe he was from Chicago. I don't remember who it was even, but it was the thing where I did go on stage and I go, you know, this is weird, but. Uh, I actually have a joke about that same Walgreens. And then I did the joke, and it worked fine. But yeah, yeah. Like, um, but you didn't quiz the guy. You didn't be like, what's what's the deal? No, I don't I don't think he stole. I mean, it was a different joke, but yep. it was just kind of like just frustrating. Because yeah. then you're like, you know, because now if, you know, anytime I have opening acts, I hate, I like to have the same person. Mm-hmm. Some clubs you have different people going on before you. Like, yeah. And then you're like, oh, I got to watch everyone. Yeah, I know. Every show. Because it's just, uh, even it's just a word. You know, someone yeah. talks about Fritos. <laughs> and then yeah. you, your big punchline is Fritos. I do have a Fritos bit. Do, you do have a Fritos. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's weird. <laughs> Frito, the Frito Bandito. Yeah, that's true. Holy shit. That's freaky. <laughs> um, but anyway, a good show. And it was, uh, I think that, I think Colbert is amazing. And I, I watched your interview. Yeah. And, you know, again, in prep to do the thing, I looked at uh, as many author segments as I could on Late Show. And, uh, you know, I thought yours was, like, perfectly Todd Barry. But he probably, he knows you. He knows your... I I mean, I did the um, Chevy Chase roast with him, I don't know, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. So I really don't know him at all. Like, that's the first time I'd seen him since then. Yeah. 
but he probably did, did, did you do a pre-interview yeah like i did one? i did yep. do a pre-interview yeah and he kind of strayed from it a little bit which kind of threw me a little bit but yeah no he totally went my thing was completely uh, off he wanted to talk about the daily show which i didn't know if he would uh and it's interesting because they cut some things out yeah, they cut some of that stuff out of mind. Yeah, something. and did you think it was... Obviously, they, they probably go a little long and... and I actually asked, because there was one thing where he uh, we talked about the Chevy Chase roast, and he kind of revealed his opinions about something regarding it or him or someone who involved in the Chevy Chase roast. I'm yeah. trying to not be obvious, but it couldn't be more obvious. Yeah. And I was like, oh, did they cut that out? Because he kind of was like, oh, I shouldn't say something bad about someone, or was it for time? And then I... I actually wrote to the segment. I goes, and he goes, "Oh yeah, we cut it out for time." Like he found, he actually didn't know, but then he found out for me. Interesting. I wonder if it's that's a lie though, because I saw him edit something for content on the show last night. Oh really? When he was talking to Zoe Kazan, uh huh. He um, he he was talking about her movie, and he described it as. Uh, it's like Transformers, but for the indie set or something. He yeah. was trying to say how hot her movie was. Yeah. And then he said, uh, and and he said, uh, or, or the indie, uh, the indie uh, set uh, for people who are interested in coma because she goes into a coma in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And he said something about a coma, and then he made a crack about uh, how Transformers puts you into a coma. You know, oh, like he made a he made a crack at Transformers, and then he just turned to the side and he just like went like that. Like oh, really? Cut that out because it got a laugh with the audience, but it's a slam against a major motion picture. And now and it's so on they... my podcast, and I'm in an awkward position. <laughs> well, the thing is, he said it, so you know. And you're the one who revealed that he said it. So. Yeah, but plus there was also there did happen to be 1,100 people there, or how, however many people are in the studio. Nah, and it's not even close to 11. It, it's like 400, maybe. It's, it's yeah, it's 400. It's pretty close to 1,100. But <laughs> <laughs> you fucking spice that up. <laughs> But so there's a huge crowd there hearing it. Someone's probably going to tweet about it, like, "Oh, it's Stephen made fun of Transformers." Yeah. But he made a joke. He made a joke about a blockbuster, and it, fairly innocuous because that's that's you know you can make fun of big budget movies and say that they're kind of dumb or mindless. Right, right, I mean, right. people yeah. do all the time. But the idea that he's on a show that you know Mark uh, Mark Wahlberg might be coming up next week or whatever, you know, uh -huh. so he doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Do you listen back to your podcast? Never. You just I used record to. it and then you put it on. Like if something is said where, you know, if someone needs something cut out because they go a little crazy and say something maybe they wish they hadn't said. Yep. Uh, I'll do that. Or if there's a technical error. But for the most part, I just kind of, I mean, when I first started, I was like, oh, I'm going to really trim these down and make them super tight. And it's then a lot just, of work. It's too much work. I don't want to listen to it. Like especially right after I did it. But, um, so no, what about you? No, I, although I did a podcast, which, and if anyone's interested, I think it's a great bit of audio storytelling called the third wheel podcast with Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan. Uh huh. And cause I was traveling with Jim. <clears throat> so I did a, uh, limited run of a podcast where I took my recorder, my mobile recorder with me on the road. Uh huh. And when he was, it's the first episode begins with Jim hosting CBS Late Show, late, uh, you know the the, the James, what is now the James Corden right, show. Right, right, right. They had guest hosts for you know a long time before James Corden got uh -huh. the job. So they would rotate people in, and they said, Jim, do you want to do a week on our show? And he said, I'll do four days, but you know I want to have my whole family because he likes to bring his family with him. Right. So they said, sure, you can come out. So he brought his whole family out, and he and Jeannie co-hosted the show, and they had a great time. So I was like, this will be great. He was like, do you want to come out on, on this? I was opening for him. 
but there was no theater gig to open for. But I was like, yeah, why don't I just come out and I can help with the show, maybe, you know, whatever. If you need help, monologue jokes, whatever. Just uh-huh. And then I followed him with the recorder. And then, uh, you know, in the hotel, he, he got a hotel room for me uh, with the kids. They're in the background. So I did this kind of NPR-style storytelling podcast mm-hmm. where I followed him. And uh, it was that was heavily edited because I did narration. I set it up like storytelling. And then I went and I, uh, you know, uh, Ken and Shecky, you know, the Jim's friends, they lived upstairs from him. Uh, Shecky Beagle? Yeah, it's Angela. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I know. Angela uh, it lived, uh, they lived upstairs from Jim in his old apartment. Okay. So I visited their, you know, uh, part two or three, whatever it was. I went to Ken and Angela's apartment and interviewed them about the early days of Jim, and mm-hmm. they told stories, and they, they, you know, she met him at a comedy contest, and all yeah. So, it was uh, just a, a heavily edited, that's when I love to work on things like that, when I'm doing what I call audio storytelling, like it's a different genre than just the podcasting interview. So, uh, but other than that, for podcasts, I just like to <laughs> let it roll. Now... <laughs> We didn't even talk about your book, hardly. What's the title of your book again? Mean Dads for a Better America. Mean Dads for a Better America? Is yeah. it about being a strict father? It is not. It is okay. not a, it's not a parenting guide. Okay. It is a, a memoir of growing up in the 70s. So I set out to write a memoir of boyhood in the 70s. I, I, I feel like it's never been done uh-huh. right. No one's ever got it right. So I was like, I'm going to write a thing that I... That I think certain people are going to really be into, okay? And then I, it ended up being more about parents, more about my mom and my dad, because you know when you're writing about childhood, it's a lot of parent stuff. So a lot of the mean dads, and then I was going to call it mean dads and cheap moms, because there's a lot of funny stories about my dad who was like scary, and my mom who was like a penny pincher. Uh huh. So it's a lot of fun family stories about uh, in the home, outdoors. There's a, there's there's a chapter on the games we played, you know, like the, the, uh, the, the, the rough and tumble of, of playground life and uh, and suburban uh, childhood outside of parenting, because mm-hmm. we we played games and we went into the woods and we got into trouble on our own. So there's a lot of that stuff. Whenever you see the '70s depicted in a movie or a TV show, it's always like hippies and like hey '70s like bell-bottom jeans right. but my town was very old-fashioned so which I, town was this norwood massachusetts okay. and it was one of the things i always talk about with people when i'm talking to young people millennials and stuff i'm like you know i'm like you don't know what the 70s looked like it looked like the 50s like so that's a refrain of my uh, i'm always saying that the 70s was more like the 1950s in most of america okay you know it wasn't like the ice storm like people like parents didn't go sleeping with each other and like it was i saw the ice storm i remember i went to see that <laughs> By myself on Thanksgiving in New York, <laughs> That's and the best. crying in the movie theater. Was, uh, everything was that was a perfect storm of Thanksgiving alone and a sad movie. Yeah, but I like that movie. But it, go ahead. Well, it, but it it is a different. Obviously, that that was um, you know Rick Moody uh, had a different childhood than I did. So I think that's the name of the author, if I'm correct. And the so I wanted to make a very personal, like fun, you know, like. The you know that movie Christmas Story kind of like that but in the seventies like that to me depicts the the nineteen fifties America in a, in a in its way so mine was like what was my life like it was the combination of the fifties and then the seventies because we had the music of of uh, the peace movement and everything and so 
I feel like I my childhood got a wonderful best of both worlds. Like we had the strict upbringing, but we also had a lot of freedom and a lot of talk about love and like Mr. Rogers. Yeah, like you're special. So I feel like there, there, I make the argument in the book that the '70s was the best time to grow up in, ever in the history of, of uh, really the world. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I grew up in the '70s, huh? Yeah, and you got you got it all. You got the whole deal. I do. I have a, have a really, uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know what I just agreed to right there. <laughs> but the the thing is that that's when I sat down to write that book, and I thought, oh, let's do that. But then as I went along with the book, I got the my editor, Carrie Thornton at HarperCollins, was like, she was guiding me away from pure memoir and into more of this, uh, you know, tell a story and then have a lesson, because it was like, I think she was right. It's basically like, if I were famous, like if I were like Tina Fey right. famous, it would be like, hey, I want to read about your life. But who really cares about Tom Schuller's life? Not many people. I sure don't. No. <laughs> so <laughs> you need to kind of make the book valuable. And so it's like, it is a, there is a little bit of parenting guide in there because I, I, I will tell a story that is meant to make people laugh in a memoir kind of way. And then at the end of the chapter, it's like, hey, what about, you know, maybe we could do that today. Maybe we can learn something from that. So it's it's set up in a way that it's easily digestible chapters. So I think in any case, what I'm saying is that the book is awesome. And it's... it's <laughs> Tom Shalhoub just said his own book is awesome. I think it's really a good book. Okay. And uh, and the, the audio book, which I recorded, is yeah. really good, I think. How do you like that experience? Because I did that with mine as well. And I was like, wow, this is so much less fun than I thought it would be. <laughs> like, I think I did a decent job. People seem to like it, but it was like, guy, it's kind of a lot of work. It's, I mean, it Just was... Just reading your own shit, and then you hate it. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I love it, but... But you, um... It was, it was a full week. It was five eight-hour days for me. Oh, really? I did mine in two days. Oh, wow. Mine was four eight-hour days, and then I went back for a pickup session. So I shouldn't say... The fifth day was just quick. I went in and did pickups. I was worried that, um... That I was, that I would lose my voice, like not literally, like I literally did, you know, had a little coffee cough kind of situation, but like worried about, oh, this he's so clearly rushing through this because he wants to stop this recording, uh -huh. but I think I, you know, so it's oh, I'm gonna to have to get it then. I want to I want to get the audiobook because I love audiobooks, especially ones that are read by the author and. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember, you know, Jim's was great, Jim Gaffigan and. Uh, so I was able to even as a as a um, as a funny bunch of stories. I think the audiobook is even it's just a different animal because the, it, it was obviously meant to be not performed. It was meant right. to be read. So you have to change your writing because I would have stories that I might have told on stage about my dad that are funny stand up -y kind of stories. Uh -huh. But then when I write them down, they're not good uh -huh. because, you know, it sounds dumb when you're writing. Right. The, the the way of speaking in, in a you know in a story or a stand up set doesn't work on the page so I would have to rewrite everything in a uh, literary way which sounds like you know kind of highfalutin but the idea of writing we something, are authors Tom yes we are and the idea of you you're trying to make you're trying to make magic on the page with your words and it's, it's very different magic than 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 the um, than the often crude rhythms of stand up uh -huh. and by crude I don't mean negative I mean the it's just very direct. Like you say the setup, you say the punchline, etc. So uh, I, I felt like that I had to write for the reader in mind. Okay, and and I think I did, uh, you know, did well in, in that department. But then you have to go back and you're kind of performing the book, but you don't want to goose it too much because you don't want to be Mister Personality in the book because it's annoying to listen to. 
Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, like, I felt like there was part of me that was like, I have, I can't change things. It's, uh, yeah, this is written, and then I just, it's not, it's dishonest to yeah. have the auto. But then I, there were a few moments where I kind of rephrase things yeah. more casually. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. But how long did it take you to write the book? A year. Um, what was your writing schedule like? Where did you write? Coffee shops? Home, late at night, because I was doing Red Eye. Oh. And we would, so I would work all day on Red Eye, and I couldn't really, I tried for a while getting up and writing, yeah. but that wasn't, it would be good if I had a, if I had a, a regular job, I think, to get up early and write, because I'm pretty good in the morning, but not when I had Red Eye, because it was, it was late, and I didn't get to sleep till late. So what I would do is do my show, I would go in at 2 o'clock at Fox News, and we would have our meeting, then we would work on Red Eye all day, and then when we finished, I would go home. And I would write on my laptop until two in the morning. Really? Yeah. For so many hours a day? Um, well, generally, at you know, a couple of hours a day. Now, did you read print pages out, or did you, how did you go over it? I thought my plan was to go out and take advantage of the world of readings, and like go to a bookstore and do a, a reading and get laughs, and then mark up the page and be like, oh, yeah. But I just didn't have time to do it. So I didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, I didn't do much of that. Colin Quinn recommended doing that. It's like, what am I going to read the whole fucking book somewhere? Yeah. But I do understand trying stuff out the way we try stuff out as comedians. Yes. Um, but it wasn't as crucial with my book, I think, like I said, because it, it is a memoir. So it was like a lot of the humor in the book wasn't going to be punchy and it right. wasn't going to be, you know, uh, jokes that, that, that are good in a live zone so it was more like write it and then print it out a few days later and then read it and be like oh this is funny because I would I worked on the book and then when we went to I took a vacation in Nantucket I wrote a lot of it in Nantucket like I just let my family go to the beach and I would sit there and write Uh huh. and it was like really I it was like so like I felt like such a writer I'm like I'm in Nantucket writing a book it seemed like really cool yeah <laughs> yeah it's very like writerly yeah <laughs> exactly but then in the fall, when I was sending pages to my editor, she was like, um, she was like, send me stuff. And then she was like, I'm not going to, she didn't, she wanted the whole book before she started editing. Like she didn't like. Really? Yeah. She was like, I want the whole thing. So. Wow. I did it differently. I kept sending. I don't know if I, if I did it the way I was supposed to do it, but I, I sent it. Like I would write two chapters and I'd send them in. Yeah. They'd read them. Give a little feedback. She was more like. Uh, hey, I like it. I like what I'm reading. Keep it coming. Like, no notes. Keep it coming. Like, it was more like, send me chapters just so I'm hitting deadlines. And then I got her the whole book by Thanksgiving. Basically, oh, so you did send her in increments there. Yeah, I did. I was sending it in to make oh. deadlines. But she didn't send back for rewrites until the whole book was done. Oh, okay. And then she kind of assembled the book as like a as a whole. Like, a you know, I felt like it was like a solo show. Like, you, you, you get the arc of the book. Did she help? She was great. Now, did Carrie she? Carrie Thornton. Carrie Thornton. I hear you're an excellent editor. She was Corolla. She edited Corolla's books. Uh-huh. So, and she, uh, Amy Poehler, you know, it's Day Street Books. So when I had, being a Fox News host, I went around and to pitched all the all the people. And there was a lot of the conservative imprints that did, you know, famous conservative figures. And I, I went with Day Street because they do, they're not that. And I thought, let's do a good... I want to do a book that's, you know, I don't want It's wanna, not really a political slant. It's to not it. at all. So they, but they would be like, 
marketing wise, they're like, no, we're going to get your book out. That you, you know, you're on Fox News. We can, we know where the opportunities are. You get your audience. Go for your audience. But I was like, no, I want to go for the whole audience. I want to go for the, for everybody. Hmm. So, I went with Day Street. She was, she was like, I like your writing. You know what I mean? We don't have to. And I was like, I don't want to do a conservative book. And she was like, good, I don't either. So we, we, um. You know, I thought it was a good a good choice, and artistically, I loved it. I loved working with an editor. Yeah, it was so good. Like, I like being pushed around, uh, and I like being uh, like I like a director when I do a, a show. I like getting a director and having them be like, "No, no, you don't do that. Do this." You know, and it's like, "Oh, oh, good idea." You know what I mean? Yeah, when they're right. Yeah, yeah. My editors, they they um, they didn't say all, they didn't like try to micromanage me very much, but their input was uh, was helpful. Yeah. And, but they're not going to help with the jokes. Right? No, they just lay the off. That. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. I kind of like that. I got that. Yeah. I got that. Yeah. So, uh, I feel like I'm supposed to ask you about politics, but I don't want to. Well, who wants it? It's horrible. I mean, I like. <laughs> I I spend my time. Well, let's say I spend my time on Red Eye. Like, how can we not talk about the the stuff that everyone's talking about right. all day? And then, uh, and I get this radio show coming out. That's what I want to plug, the radio show. Okay, what's your radio the show? The book, too. I mean, obviously, I hope yeah. people read the book. And then my radio show is uh, July 10th. It it's premieres on Fox News Radio. Oh. And then we do uh, talk radio every day, 3 to three to 6. Is Drive it, time radio. Is it Hannity-type stuff? No. It's more like... Um, You're not Hannity-level conservative, are you? Well, no, but uh, the thing is, I'm, I'm conservative, but I don't really care. It's just a matter of... I could be even to the right of Hannity, but I would still have my attitude, which is one of... I'm not to the right of Hannity, I don't think, but the <laughs> idea is that I am... I never say... Like, I'm not middle of the road. People are like, well, you're not that conservative. I'm like, I'm like, who cares? Stop pretending. I don't want to pretend I'm... Because I'm more conservative than a lot of people uh-huh. in New York. Especially in our le- business. Yes. So, yeah. So if you want to call me, like, right-wing nut, I am compared to my communist friends, for sure. <laughs> but the... The uh, as far as the, the country's concerned, I am middle of the road because I'm like middle. Like there's a lot of people out there who are very conservative, you know. Right. And they they let me know it. Believe me, because I'm on Fox News Radio. So people email in. They're like, "You stink," you know. You gotta. You didn't. You didn't attack that guy. I'm like, I have red eye. I had at least one uh, left wing or one at least one Democrat, mm-hmm. and mo- mo- most of the ones I had on were left wing because those are the interesting ones, you know. Uh, Every night. And then they were like, why aren't you crushing that guy? Because I don't like to crush people. Because Red Eye, we would laugh, laugh, and then they would say their opinion. And I'm like, well, what do you think? And then they... So it was... Uh, it's just a different style. Like, a lot of people on Fox News, just like a lot of people on the... Uh, on a different... Like, you know, say MSNBC or something, they want to crush people. Like, have them into the, the lion's den and, like, you know, destroy them with... with um... I saw Chris Wallace crush, crush one of Trump's lawyers pretty nicely. You did? Yeah. Oh, no, that was Jay Sekulow, right? Yeah. He didn't crush him. <laughs> Jay Sekulow. You don't think he Jay, crushed him? I like Sekulow. I think he's great. And he's uh, this is a smart guy, Jay Sekulow. Oh, I'm sure he's not a dumb guy. Yeah. But. but I don't know what he's saying. Who knows? Trump is like very... It's You don't know what he's doing. It doesn't make any sense. You know? So you're going, you're speaking out against Trump then? I just don't know what... I, I can't speak out or for him. Like, I think it's... I think Trump is hilarious. Really? I thought... I, thought, I used to think he was hilarious. And I was like, oh, this isn't... It's funny. <laughs> it, 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 and the thing is, it's funny. Nothing's bad. The, I mean, not, like, the world is fine. Everybody's fine. Like, I think it's. So. Yes. I'm not. There's no crisis. And that's what, to me, 
the what I want to because I end up making fun of uh, obviously Trump like we play clips of him on the radio show and we laugh about it as does like you know people and I have right and left wing people on the show there's a lot of Republicans who come on the radio because I've been kind of practicing on radio like uh-huh. we've been doing six to nine at night so I've been doing Fox News radio before my show premieres and you know Andy Levy who's a libertarian is on and we we have great laughs every night talking about things and he does not like Trump at all and then I'll like have I'll play Trump clips and I just think it's funny like the <laughs> the stuff he does like he's, I mean it's it's unprecedented it's, I think it's just we we have to celebrate living in this time of like people the president tweeting things and people going crazy I think it's just very funny uh I'm uh, I, I'm not uh I don't think the the sky is falling and is he going to uh, get impeached I don't think so, but maybe. I mean, <laughs> they can do whatever they want. These people, you know, they can, they can, <laughs> they can have impeachment hearings. I mean, they did it with Clinton. That was a big pain. Like we went through years of impeachment. He did get impeached, right? He just didn't yeah. get convicted, right? And I believe I'm right when I say right. Yeah, and that, and I think everyone realizes that was a big, that was kind of a uh, you know boondoggle, if that's the word, and. Uh, and a waste of time, a waste of money too. But I said that then because I'm smart. Because because <laughs> I said to Republicans, "You guys are crazy. Stop with this nonsense. Just let this guy who had sex with people in the White House, like let him just you know be that guy, and then you can do whatever you want. But don't like waste everyone's time with all these like the hearings. I think the hearings are hilarious in there. I definitely think Democrats are making fools of themselves with this like hearing oh and you know trying to it's it's all grandstanding and silly so i feel like i have a good thirty thousand feet perspective on things but for people who take all this stuff seriously and tune into rachel maddow and they think that you know they're watching the republic with you know i think they shouldn't they wouldn't like my show because to me i i uh i generally didn't think it was a tragedy when Obama was elected, and I, I didn't think that the sky was falling then, and I, I don't now. And uh, I think there's a bit of a national silliness going on with, like, this is unprecedented in history. And it's unprecedented in a stylistic kind of way, but mm-hmm. in the end, it's the same stuff happening over and over. And I'm, I mean, I'm 50. I was, I was in the Nixon era. I remember, like, that, all that, that stuff happening. Yeah. And everyone thought, oh, no, this is all coming down. And then Reagan, and then people were like, Reagan, oh, the world, the, the Russians, and nuclear war, nuclear winter. I mean, I was in high school when the nuclear winter was coming. And uh, again, it was, it's been sky is falling a lot of my life. And I've learned to not take it seriously, and which is why I'm ideally suited for something like a talk radio show whose purpose is to not take this stuff seriously. Do they ever, um, does Fox News ever encourage you to be more of a destroyer type like i feel no, like they they i think they know that first of all news corp is the greatest thing in the world and the murdochs are are the greatest <laughs> oh family in the world okay because <laughs> and fox news is awesome because they have never like think of it they hired me no one has ever even suggested anything for me to say ever mm-hmm. and that's the way they are across the board they don't tell hannity what to say they don't tell clearly them. They didn't tell O'Reilly exactly, exactly, exactly. And look, it, they, they'd be smart too every once in a while to, to police things. But they are very, uh, they are, they 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 create 
these shows. I know there is great diversity of opinion in that building. I get in fights with people all the time, like, you know, in a, in a very fun kind of way. I mean, I do see, like, when your friend was batted around really good, Jay Secular. Yeah. Uh, Secular. Jay Secular. Um, I was like, okay, because people who have posted that quote who are clearly um, liberal, mm-hmm. like, what's going to happen here yeah. for this dude? So I thought, I mean, I think sometimes Fox, I mean, they're clearly slanted. But occasionally they do. I've seen them be pretty even-handed. I think you can see occasionally who, you can see where they're slanted though, because they're all very. I think we know where Hannity stands. He's very, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> but then you got guys like Gutfeld who are very, you know, they're more like me. They they have, uh, um, you know, they they more like to have fun with seeing hypocrisy on uh, wherever it, it lands. You have uh, Dana Perino, super smart, worked for Bush. Not a huge fan of Trump. Like she'll, she argues. Uh, I, I, I do the five sometimes. I fill in for Greg, and there's five different personalities in there. You got, um, this, there's, uh, um, you know, Juan Williams, very uh, Democrat, uh, fights with, uh, with guys like Gutfeld. I think, you know, you have in that building people I see every day: anti-Trump Republicans, uh, somewhat sympathetic. Trump, uh, you know, working class Democrats, anti-Trump Democrats. Uh, there's some, there's pro-Trump people, but not that many for Fox News. You know what I mean? When you look at the, 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 the great um, diversity of opinion. I love using the word diversity. I uh-huh. did it the other day on that the comic strip podcast, and you know, Natimer was like, "Oh, you mean diversity of uh, comedy you know seller podcast?" Yeah, comedy seller. What did he I said, say? comic strip. Comic seller. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, those are two <laughs> if you ever wanted to edit anything out, it was that. No, it was at the Olive Tree. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Noam, and it's a, it was a great podcast. But we were talking politics, which Noam likes to do. And then I used the word diversity of thought, and then Natterman said, uh, "You're not talking about skin color, though, are you?" And I said, "Well, no, I'm talking about the important, the only important thing, diversity of thought. When you're talking about, if you're talking about broadcasting." Mm-hmm. Because I don't really care about skin color, because I'm an advanced thinker, and uh, <laughs> but so I purposefully use the word diversity of thought because I like the the fact that where it counts, the place where I work has a great diversity of opinion, more so than any network I've ever worked. That's Comedy Central, that's MTV, that's cable news, CNN. I've worked on NBC. The most diverse thought, the most diversity of political opinion, Fox News. Hmm. No joke. Think about it. Write to me. Write me letters, people. Find me some place that represents more diversity of opinion. Oh, this is good. <laughs> like, I know there's people who think I should be destroying you, but I, it's not my style, and it's we are your, friends. It's neither our styles. <laughs> but someone could get you good. I'm just not the person. Shepard Smith all day. Shepard Smith. Shepard Smith, he, I've seen him have some pretty... Uh, he'll call people out on their... Sh- man. Yeah. And then the, the straightest of news, 6 o'clock with Brett Bear. It's straight down the middle. It's news. It's called information. Do you um, Have you found it a struggle to be... Have you ever done, like, a conservative comedy show? Like, I know there's, like... No. With the other two conservative comedians in the world? No, we don't. And it's funny, because Gutfeld and I get together and talk about it a lot. um, Because we don't want to do that world. Because we kind of like comedy. Like, Greg loves great comedians. Yeah. And uh, as do a lot of the guys who I think are right of center in the comedy world. Like, a lot of these guys in, in radio, a lot of the people from the... You know the the Nick DiPaolo and and uh, you know I don't want to put Jim in there because uh, 
Norton is not really conservative. He's just not, you know, he hates political correctness. You know, there's that that anti-politically correct comedy world, which uh-huh. I think uh, I I love more than political right-wing comedy. You know, because again, it's it's not that funny to me because I don't take it that seriously. I like to. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to do satir- I'm not going to be satirizing the left because I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't cotton to political satire of the, of like the Samantha Bee variety. It's just not my style. Like I wouldn't want a, a right wing Samantha Bee because I don't. I don't want to see like oh look what this person said and I'm going to satirize them. It's like, I'd rather l- laugh at the headlines than, than like, you know, la- and that than take the position seriously. I think a lot of political satirists today, they. They care too much, mm-hmm. you know. They they care deeply about these issues, and then they try to poke fun of them. And it's like, actually, you're not really poking fun of them. You're, you're just being a uh, demagogue, and you're thinking that you're making comedy. But to me, it's not funny at all. Like the, I can see the when I see the caring, when I see the right, it's <laughs> when like, I see the heart, then it gets too preachy. <laughs> it does, yeah. Do you have any like full on left wing opinions? Uh, I think I'm pretty left wing on drug war stuff. You know what I mean? Because I used to be standard. Uh, I was like, yeah, I don't like, you know, like, let's let law enforcement do their jobs and whatever. But then uh, to me, uh, I saw it not working. So I tend to be pretty libertarian on that, on those drug war things. I don't think they worked. So that's pretty, um, that's pretty, uh, you know, I would agree with left wingers on that. I think I also agree with a lot of left wingers on like, like foreign policy stuff. I think we're bad like doing doing wars is bad (laughs) (laughs) doing wars doing wars but i do like right wing you know i like right wing military like building up the military and you know that kind of thing but what about like social issues like uh your marriage equalities and things like that yeah that's that that marches to its own drum so i think government should get out of that you know what i mean and it's handled all by itself you know what do you mean the thing is that i think that most social issues are going to happen on their own without all the meddling so both sides should get out of them you know what I mean get out of the uh, you know the march of the march of social progress or whatever the heck you call it it's like it's gonna it's like it's unstoppable so just let it let it go I'm very I'm very libertarian on that kind of stuff too Um, I just create my own little um, oppressive world I see if you ever liberal not libertarian but there I guess there's a crossover yeah, I'm not liberal. I mean, I'm I'm anti-liberal. I think it's bad, but, but because they're all they don't. I feel like lib, libertarian is quite different because it is, it is uh, tends to be more anti-government, which I am. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Uh, suspicious of government power. So I don't like regulations. I don't like people telling you know diet regulations. I don't like forcing people to put calories on things. Like I'm I very like the anti- calorie that. thing. The only I didn't the soda ban. I had a problem with. Cause, See, because I know friends of mine who are like, oh, it's a great thing. And it's like at some point it, it is sort of like you can't tell an adult how much soda pop to drink. Yeah, those totalitarian I mean, friends of yours. They it's want to control your life. Stupid to drink. So I mean, I occasionally have one. I'm not a health nut by any chance, by any stretch. But I mean. If you're drinking a big gulp, you're, it's an incredibly stupid thing to do, I'm guessing. Yeah. But I don't want to make that against the law. Of course not. Especially when you can buy, you know, like, it's going to reduce the, the, have a max for these ounces of soda, but you can also buy a piece of layer cake or something. It's ridiculous. Or ice cream. Let people be. I want, I'm not, I don't want smoking laws. 
Let really? People, let people have a nightclub where you can smoke. But there, there's a few, aren't there? Well, they, they, no, that's even worse because then they make the law and then someone gets an exemption, like a religious like exemption a, for like, you know, because they're Islamic, so they want to have hookahs or something. And it's like, yeah, forget about the hookahs. Let a guy open a bar where smoking's allowed. Have like a really East Village bar. And, you know, I, 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 I actually don't there. have a problem. I don't have a problem. Yeah, I think I have a, yeah, I don't necessarily have a problem with someone who's like, because otherwise, because smoking is legal. Yeah. It's, you know, not a smart thing to do. But if people want to go to a smoky bar, right, I wouldn't. I would just go, oh, that's not the bar for me. Let the 24-year-olds go smoke. They'll smoke. Because I used to do stand-up in a smoky room. I know, and it's go terrible. And I, you know, I thought, well, whatever. It's, it's a smoky room. Bother Who cares? Oh, it didn't bother me when I was 24. But then it would bother me now. Especially now that you like when you go into a smoky bar, like a hookah bar, to do to do some show at Cabin or wherever the hell, hell they mm-hmm. have these. I forget the room that has the hookah bar in it. And then you come home and your your clothes stink so bad. Yeah, it's you can't even believe there was a time right, when smoking like, was yeah, legal. Yeah, exactly. But it should be. Like occasionally, I will go on the road and some find some pocket of a place where they're like the Buffalo Wild Wings. They can still smoke, and yeah. you're like. It, it's like, holy sh- do you guys see what's going on here? And they have massive transformer-like smoke eaters blowing on you all the time when you're but there. they don't it's- do the job. No, they don't. That's what's amazing. They don't do the job. No. Um, well, the book, tell me the title again. Mean Dads <laughs> for a Better America, The Generous Rewards of an Old-Fashioned Childhood. That's the... Okay, I don't feel bad about not memorizing that title. No, it's it's all it's all over the place. I wanted to call it my subtitle was, and once again, it shows you why an author needs an editor. My thing was Mean Dads for a Better America, my 1950s childhood in the 1970s. Because again, I I have this thing about how I wanted to stress how the 70s was really more like the 50s for so much of us. But my editor was like, "There's too many numbers in your title. Like, who kid? Not 57. What are you talking about? Like, it's not clear. Right. It's not lean and mean. No. And so she was so right. And she came up with that subtitle, and so once again, you know, we're not the brightest people in the world. You owe her quite a bit. Uh, you going on a book tour at all? No, we went, like, we just did media. We did, you know, I did all of Fox, I did Fox and Friends, did, like, you know, exposed myself to so many people through the Fox network, right? And then I did Colbert, obviously, that was the kind of capper on the press thing. And then I did tons of podcasts, and, um, I did 700 Club. I did <laughs> Legion of Skanks. Legion of Skanks. Well, I love that, the, the, the disparity. I did the Evangelical show, and then I did J, Big J's uh, <laughs> anal sex show. <laughs> it was really something. But, you know, you that's what I'm trying to do is reach the... Uh, what, what about MSNBC? Reach the masses. Will they let you on there? They would, um, but they didn't uh, offer, didn't you know, for... For a month after I do my book, I could, I can do, you know, Fox opens up the media. You know, I work on Fox, so they don't want me doing other really? networks. Well, you, when you work on Fox, you don't do, you can't go like, oh, I'll go do Even to promote a separate project. No, no, you can to promote a separate project. But normally, they're like, it's like, I'm not going to go on CNN, like, reliable sources and talk. Right, you know, right. So, because Fox has their people and stuff like that. But then when you release a book, they let you go on the other shows. And you go around, and so that's why people do other people's shows. So I did some other shows, and, uh, you know, it was good. I was supposed to do Corolla this week, but I had to, you know, I couldn't leave New York because of the, the Colbert. So hopefully I'll get to L.A., and I will do, uh, I was slated to do Hallmark Channel and Corolla. 
So, uh, uh, what can you even? What is there? What show is on the Hallmark Channel? They have a great morning show. Do with, they uh, with Debbie Matinopoulos? You know her? Oh, mm-hmm. was she on The View? Yep, yep. And uh, now they have a great. It's called Home and Family. It's a great show for families. And uh, so do they I, know that you did Legion of Skanks? Because I feel like they might. Uh, that's, it's behind a paywall. That'll so. be funny to see uh, your press schedule. Seven Hundred Club, uh, Hallmark Channel, Legion of Skanks. <laughs> We're going to be going. Tom, we have to leave the uh, Hallmark Channel now because we have to go do Legion of Skanks. <laughs> it was great, though. Those guys were. No, I like those guys. Really good. Um, um, well, Tom, do you have any great. dates to promote or anything? No, just the radio show. Hopefully, people will. Um, What's it called? It's called The Tom Shalou Show. We're going like. So, how do we're people going find that? How do people it's Fox News Radio, so it's on everything. And it's going to be great to get a gauge on how uh, so far I've been filling in like I said at night and people listen on the Fox News app yeah we're on channel 450 on Sirius XM okay so that's great that's Fox News talk okay and then we're gonna have uh, the listen in app that's another uh, uh, tune in right tune in app yeah tune in radio you oh, know? I got tune in yeah tune in so we're on there and then we're on radio stations you know we got affiliates all over the country so, so you're raking it in you're gonna make a lot of money uh, it's gonna be a good it's a great <laughs> broadcasting opportunity the, now, you mentioned people you want them to come at you with challenging you on Fox News. So how can they do that? TomShalou.com. Okay. And you can email me through the website. Facebook.com slash, I think, Shalou is my thing. Yeah. And, Just Shalou. And, uh, and then Twitter. But uh, I want to specifically, if, if anyone wanted to address my diversity of, of yeah, opinion. Yeah. How Fox News, uh, sunrise to sunset has a great diversity of viewpoints uh-huh. broadcast on their channel every day. That's, they could tweet at you or... Yeah, if they have, if they want to dispute that, because I, I can, you know, it's very easy to supply them with a, a range of opinion that is seen on the network each day. You should make like a JPEG that you send that has all the stuff on it. I would actually like to create a blog called Diversity of Thought. Uh, I, feel like you could, I feel like diversity of thought. It's America, you can do your own. You could do a block. I know. I should do it. And uh, least, I don't think the word gets. I don't think that that people around FNC spread the word enough about the uh, the diversity of thought that is, <laughs> that is. I feel like I've always felt it whenever I talk to you that you kind of like. There's party like this where like I don't believe the shit. I'm just telling you, <laughs> kind of like kinda, like you're a shit stir. But that's all right. <laughs> Thanks for coming back on the show. All right. Fantastic. And people at home, I'll see you soon, I hope. Bye. Feral Audio. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase.